Welcome to The Fastest Five Minutes, presented by Kroll & Mooring. We are your co-hosts, Peter Ayer and David Robbins, bringing you a bi-weekly summary of significant government contracts, legal and regulatory developments that no government contracts lawyer or executive should be without. This week, we start with an important final rule having to do with non-conforming items. So here's the background. There's been a huge focus on counterfeit parts. There has been a DFARS provision in effect for many years. Now, as of November 22nd, we saw a final provision coming out of the FAR Council, and it essentially requires reporting and screening for a broader array of products. So here's the basic gist of it. The final rule creates a new provision, 52.246-26, called Reporting Non-Conforming Items, which will be included in new procurements, including DOD, and it applies to the following categories of items. Items that are subject to FAR 52.246.11, which is higher level contract quality requirements. Items identified by the contracting officer as critical items. Electronic parts and end items, components, parts, or assemblies containing electronic parts. And services where the contract will furnish, as part of the service, certain of those items. The reporting requirement is triggered by the contractor or subcontractor's identification of certain counterfeit or suspect counterfeit items, as well as goods with major nonconformances, generally viewed as material or critical, and there are definitions in the rule. But here's a really important part. Unlike the proposed rule in 2014, the final rule explicitly excludes certain categories of items, most notably commercial items or commercially available off-the-shelf items. So in some ways, the applicability is going to be a little bit limited. The interplay with the DFARS provision is going to be really important. Another important consideration is that there is now a screening requirement so that contractors must screen GUIDEP, which is the government industry data exchange, to look for potential matches that would indicate potential counterfeit items. So this is important in many ways. The practical impact we're still going to have to keep an eye on because of those exclusions, but definitely continues this trend of supply chain management, focusing on counterfeit parts in the supply chain. David, over to you. Yeah, thanks, Peter. I think it's really interesting, right? We've had the proposed rule for five years. Now we've gone final with an exception that might swallow a good bit of it, but also expansion with screening lower down in the supply chain, probably touching far more subcontractors and suppliers than before. Agree. And I do think anecdotally what we're already hearing and seeing is that some agencies will view this as insufficient. So we will see separate Section H clauses where agencies are doing something different because they don't think this adequately protects their interests. So lots to watch there. Absolutely. All right, let's skip over to size standard news. Earlier this month, the SBA published a final rule implementing the Small Business Runway Extension Act of 2018. And the idea there is it's implementing the Runway Act's method for calculating average annual receipts used to set size standards for small businesses. And this will apply to both the SBA's receipt-based size standards and other agencies' proposed receipt-based size standards. And the deal is they extend the average period from three years to five years. You got a little bit longer, and one-year spike isn't necessarily going to have quite as big of an impact, I guess on eligibility for ongoing procurements and small business size. Okay, 
On to EEO1. And for the several years we've been doing this podcast, we've been reporting on various moves within EEO1, what additional data is required, when it's not required, and it's gone back and forth. The pendulum has moved again. Late last month, DOL's OFCCP issued a notice stating that it will not request or use the compensation data, which is component two of that form, that employers were required to submit in September 2019 under the 2016 revision to EEO-1 survey, and that survey was put on hold by the Trump administration, reinstated by the courts, and this time EEOC is not going forward to secure OMB approval for EEO-1 data collection, which basically says we're not doing this anymore. Now, remember, this applies to Component 2 data only. They'll continue to utilize Component 1 data. That's regarding the number of employees by category, by race, sex, ethnicity, and the like. So we'll keep watching. The pendulum is probably going to swing back again, but this is the current state of play. Perfect. All right. Thank you, David. It is rare that we talk about mandatory disclosure and attorney-client privilege and case law. doesn't come up very often. No, it doesn't. But we've got an interesting one for you this week. So on November 8th, 2019, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia held that a contractor had waived protections of the attorney-client privilege and work product doctrine when it made certain disclosures to the government following an internal investigation. The matter involves an employment dispute that arose after the plaintiff, a former employee of that contractor, was terminated after an internal investigation and disclosures to the government. The court held that although the disclosure purported to reveal mere facts, the contractor had actually disclosed legal conclusions which characterize the conduct in a way that reveals attorney-client communication. The contractor had made the disclosures under the mandatory disclosure rule, that's 52203-13, but the contractor had also said that it was voluntary. The court held that the disclosures were voluntary and further noted that the mandatory disclosure regulation does not require disclosure of investigatory findings and therefore the credible evidence which triggers the requirement or any other details. So here there's a real question about how you frame your disclosures, what you reveal, whether you focus on facts, whether you include advocacy. It's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, how to do disclosures in a way that meets the requirement, meets the expectation, but also protects the attorney-client privilege and other applicable protections in the context of investigation. So something for practitioners and contractors to be quite mindful of. And there's a big push to try and get this decision reconsidered, right? And this is where contractors are trapped. I agree, Peter, wholeheartedly, right? You either say, this is a mandatory disclosure, which contains in and of itself an admission that we have credible evidence of, among other things, violation of law. That's a damaging admission, potentially. Or you say, you know what, this is an abundance of caution or otherwise voluntary, and you get hit with a potential waiver. Obviously, all of our discussions with clients talk about, look, this may be an area where you want to waive. This is early enough. You're probably going to have to give up information anyway. And we have that discussion while trying to preserve applicable privilege. But this decision's made it harder. That's for sure. And in the meantime, you know, as a practical matter, one of the things we should all think about is until we get clarification, we should be mindful that what we do in the context of that internal investigation, that waiver is possible. Yes. Um, so just be really mindful from the beginning and take certain steps to protect the privileges as much as possible. Agreed. All right. Well, in the category of I'm kicking myself for not thinking of this sooner, 
went ahead and changed my Twitter handle from one which was sort of procurement fraud defense focused to more broadly at GovK, G-O-V-K lawyer, GovK lawyer. And we have all this great material that goes into these podcasts. As you can imagine, there's a lot more to it that we can condense here. So I'm going to try in the new year to a few times a week, go a little deeper on some of the topics we talk about throughout the week. So if you're interested, please follow me at GovK lawyer. And with that, we'll close. That's all for this edition. If you have further questions, Peter's at 202-624-2807, and I'm at 202-624-2627, and apparently at GovK Lawyer. Have a great week. The Fastest 5 Minutes podcast is brought to you by Kroll & Mori LLP. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review. You can find more information at kroll.com slash govconpodcast. podcast.